Well, we are, uh, it's the third Sunday of Advent, and we're finally at the point where we're going to see where everything we've looked at so far in anticipation of the birth of Christ comes to fruition. We are going to, we're going to study now Luke's account of the birth of Jesus Christ. Uh, we've seen the foretelling of the birth of John the Baptist and of Jesus, the birth of John the Baptist, and the message to Joseph. When we've looked at all of those things that are all in anticipation now of, of what we just heard in prayer, of, of that just right time of the coming of the Messiah. And we're going to look at that this morning from Luke's account in chapter 2. Uh, what's, what's telling right off the bat is, given the import and the significance of this event, is how simple and compact the actual narrative is. It's not that long. In fact, you'll notice that the birth is only, what, verses 1 through 7. And then you have things associated with the birth, and that is the, the shepherds. But it's, it's interesting to, 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 to contemplate that, that here it is, it's just so simple. But there's so much packed in here, and we're going to look at that. Uh, the outline is two points, and we have the nativity of Jesus. We'll look at that. And then the nobility of the shepherds, given their lowly position, uh, how it is that they react to this great good news. And of course, how we're going to react. We'll see how we do as well. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to divide it into two parts. So it's going to be very familiar to you uh, from Charlie Brown, <laughs> King James anyway. Um, so let's, but we're going to kind of unpack it a little bit. So uh, verses 1 through 7. Jay? Yes. There you go, buddy. Okay. Our designated first reader. All right, 1 through 7. Luke. Okay. I will read that. Chapter 2. In those days of decree. Is this right? Yep, you got it. In those days of decree went out from Emperor Augustus that all the world should be registered heavily taxed. This was the first registration and was taken by Quintinius, uh, here's a, I love these names, Septimus Severus <laughs> and Quintinius Marius. <laughs> this Quit adding, let's go buddy. <laughs> all went to their own towns to be registered. Joseph also went from the town of Nazareth and Galilee to Judea, to the city of David, called Bethlehem, because he was descended from the house of the family of David. He went to be registered with Mary, to whom he was engaged and who was expecting a child. While they were there, and the time came for her to deliver her child, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes bands of cloth and laid them in a manger because there was no room for the men in the air. All right. Very familiar passage, even with the additions. Good job. Um, very familiar passage. Uh, and we start off uh, with Luke establishing the time, making sure we understand this is a historical event. Remember, Luke is our consummate historian. But as a consummate historian, this is one of the passages that a lot of other historians say Luke is wrong. Uh, here we see, they say that Luke gets some things confused in his account, and we're going to look at that. 
But notice we start off with the, the broad view, and that is that there is an emperor, Caesar, Caesar Augustus. Uh, Caesar Augustus was the grandnephew of Julius Caesar, first emperor uh, after the Civil War ended uh, in 31 B.C., the Roman Senate declared him Augustus, or highest. And from then, Rome was an empire. You had an emperor. And he established what historians call, what we understand is the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. At least outwardly, as far as wars were concerned, for his, his reign, for the most part, the Mediterranean Basin, the Roman Empire experienced peace. People could travel relatively unmolested and people could get about around with their lives. And he was hailed as a savior. Okay, he, in fact, uh, inscriptions have him as when he was born, the world received good news of peace. And this was about Augustus. Uh, so, he was known as a, a good, good ruler. But at the same time, in Palestine at the time, you also have a, a king, Herod. And we'll talk a little bit more about him uh, later. But uh, as good as an emperor as Augustus was, you have Herod, who Augustus says it'd be better to be his pig than his son. On a play on words. Uh, well, it's during that time, and here's where the, the historical um, controversy comes in. We're told that Augustus levied a decree that all of his realm, his, his realm would be, uh, there would be a census. Now, there were census, censuses? Since, since I. <laughs> there were these things. <laughs> uh, uh, at periodic times, every 14 years, these things would happen. Uh, and it was for taxation purposes. It's not just so that, you know, we have a nice, nice uh, catalog of who's in the Roman Empire. It was all for taxation. And the various different provinces were allowed to, 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 to do this census however they wished as far as their local customs are concerned. And that's going to play into this in just a moment. But what the problem is, is we're told that this is the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And the controversy is that historically it appears that from extra-biblical sources uh, early on that he didn't, he didn't come into his governorship until 6 AD, which is about 10 years too late for the birth of Jesus Christ because Jesus is born before Herod dies in 4 BC. So obviously you have, a, there's, there's some confusion or controversy here. So how do we deal with this? How, does, how do we, is Luke right or is everyone else right? Yes. Okay. Here's the deal. Um, while his, the one we know from Josephus, the Jewish historian, began in 6, uh, this, this um, he, he demanded a census in 6, A.D., that actually caused a, 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 a rebellion. And in fact, Luke brings up that rebellion in Acts chapter 5. Remember Acts 5 when we studied that? 
uh, in Gamaliel's council, he talks about the revolt under a guy named Judah. Well, that was the revolt because of Quirinius issuing this at Augustus's order, this census. So they're thinking, what do we do with this? However, there are other sources, other inscription sources from archaeology that it appears that Quirinius was actually, actually served two terms as governor, and one coincided with when Herod was still on the throne with this particular time. Uh, and, and it appears as well that in between these governorships, he didn't actually return to Rome, that he was still sort of a commander-in-chief of Roman garrisons all through the whole time. And while we do recognize that he established, he, he was governor beginning in 6 AD and a census then, that doesn't discount that there could be a census that extra-biblical records don't account for when he was governor previously. There are others who would say that this should be translated instead of the first census taken while Quirinius was governor, it should be the census taken before Quirinius was governor. Uh, there is some textual evidence for translating that Greek word before instead of first, although the overwhelming evidence is first. All that to say is that I think with all the controversy surrounding this, I want to give Luke the benefit of the doubt because all through contemporary or more recent biblical scholarship when people were trying to show how the Bible writers were wrong, Luke over and over again has been proven right with more and more archaeological findings and those things. A lot of things that people used to say about Luke as being a poor historian have gone by the wayside. And we looked at a lot of those in the book of Acts. So I'm going to give Luke the benefit of the doubt that he knows what he's talking about and that we just don't have a fuller record, although there is more and more inscriptionary evidence about these things. So just know that that's a controversy that a lot of people will bring up. Well, anyway, there's a, there's a census. What do you do with a census? Well, you have to, you have to register your, your residence and your occupation and your family, and that's all for taxation purposes. We're told that Joseph goes with Mary to Bethlehem, his ancestral home. Uh, a lot of folks will say, well, that wasn't demanded. They didn't have to do that. But remember that Augustus, when he did these censuses, since I, when he did these countings, these tax, tax investigations, he allowed for local custom to dictate how people did it. We actually have evidence that in Egypt when this happened that people did go to their ancestral home to register. And of course in some place like Palestine with, with tribal affiliations and family affiliations it would only make sense that Herod would want that as well. That they would go where, where their ancestral home is by line by tribe. So he does. So he takes Mary to Bethlehem. Bethlehem, the city of David the ancestral birthplace and home of King David. Bethlehem is Hebrew for house of bread. Bethlehem. So you have the house of bread, which of course has associations, right, with Jesus being the bread of life, yes. And also, this is the city of David. This is where the great king was born. Interestingly, called out of being a shepherd in this very environment. You have 
David, the great shepherd king, called. And now we're going to see the birth of the great shepherd in the line of David, of the house of David, born in the city of David. A lot of people ask, well, why did he take Mary? I'm like, my goodness, that's a rough trek. If she is already, as we say, great with child, that's, that's a rough trek for someone. Um, I'm sorry? On a donkey or however she went. It's going to be rough no matter what. <laughs> Stop that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it'd be a rough birth now. I mean, a rough trek now. It doesn't mean, you know, with, with amazing suspension on our vehicles. It's still going to be a rough trek. Well, they wouldn't have been in a chariot, yeah. They're not rich enough. Now, there are, there are several explanations, just that common sense dictates. One is that he would take Mary with her because he wanted to be with her when she gave birth. That's number one, all right? Number two, as we heard last week, uh, this is probably, too, to protect her reputation. I mean, here, here they are. They ha she's about to give birth, and they haven't been <laughs> married nine months. So part of this is to protect her reputation as well. To, he's going to bring her with him when all this happens so that she's not left alone to face the gossip and innuendo and all that kind of stuff. And then finally, what we forget is that they've both been given angelic visitations about the nature of this person being born. This is the Messiah. And being steeped in their own scriptures, they would know that the Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem. Now, we'll get more of that in Matthew's account, but in, we read um, in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, As for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. So people knew this, and it's not unreasonable to know that they would know this. So what's fun about this, too, is that you see Luke beginning with, here's the emperor of, of basically the known world, the Roman Empire, issuing this decree, and unbeknownst to him, he is ushering in the fulfillment of the prophecy for the birth of the Christ in Bethlehem by his very actions. So we see God, who is providential and over all of history. Caesar didn't know that. He didn't know what he was doing. God did. And it appears that Mary and Joseph, too, knew that. Well, he goes to Bethlehem because that's his ancestral home. That means he has relatives there. Some speculate that he might have had property there. That there was some property there, and hence he's going there to register for the taxes because he has property there as well. We don't know that. We don't know. That's just speculation. It makes some sense. But if that's the case, we know he had to have relatives there. It's his, it's his ancestral home. What's it say that he got there and they couldn't find a place to stay? Couldn't they stay with relatives? I mean, he... Some speculate that these relatives were renting wherever they were living from him. Now, we, again, we don't know, but 
We have a tendency in our mind to think that here you have these two just showing up, not knowing anyone, looking for a motel, and all the motels are full, and well, they go to the parking garage. <laughs> That's kind of how we tend to think of it. Now, of course, they get there, and why would there be, why would there be no place to stay? Well, if you are having this census taken, the, the census is actually still taken by some Roman magistrates and those kinds of people, soldiers, and they would take up what few places in a small place like Bethlehem. This is not a big place. They would take up whatever places were there for guests. So it's not as if the innkeeper said, no, no room for you. That's kind of how we tend to think of it as well. Um, there's just no guest room. Now, there's speculation as to, you know, what kind of place were they seeking shelter in? Was it the home of a relative? Was it wasn't in a caravanstery is what they call them in historic writing, where you actually had places like rest areas, where caravans could loosely leave their beasts and their pack animals and their servants, their slaves, on one level, and they would sleep in a few upper levels. Then this is not luxury, by the way. This doesn't even rise to one star, all right? But, or it could have been relatives, we don't know. But it's not what we think of usually as a hotel, an inn in that sense. It's not a bed and breakfast. No Motel 6. No Motel 6, not even a Motel 1, okay? <laughs> not even that. All right, so that brings us to, well then what was the nature of where this took place. If they couldn't stay in a guest room or, in a, in, or just in a rented space on the floor in an upper level, uh, and by the way, that word used in Greek here is the same Greek word used for upper room. The upper room later, the, where, where we have the Lord's Supper, that's the same word used here because guests often stayed in upper rooms. But it's not the word for, they had another word for an inn as we would understand it, well, as they would understand it. So, where, where was this stable? Well, there's a lot of speculation, depending on where they were staying. But it's all just reasoned conjecture. Now, we do know that uh, Constantine's mother erected a church in Bethlehem, the church of the Nativity, over the traditional site of where Jesus was supposed to have been born. And it's a cave, it's sort of a grotto, a cave. And often these sort of dug out caves or grottos were used for stabling animals. It makes sense, right? It's just kind of a built-in place for this. So if you go to that church today, you'll go downstairs to that. That's what you'll see. Uh, earliest, the earliest to, to say that, that's, that it was a cave was Justin Martyr in the second century, saying that it was the cave. And then later, uh, again, with Constantine and his mother, then establishing that. And the church that you see today was actually refurbished, rebuilt by Justinian in the 4th century. So that's the church you see today. But it is speculation. Some would say that it was just, again, the bottom floor of whatever house didn't have any upper rooms. That's where you would stable your animals. That's where you would do this. And of course, and some would say, no, it's in one of these caravansteries where you had places to stable the animals. All that to say, it's a stable. Which, of course, given the pronouncement to Mary that your son will be great, 
Hail, blessed one. Stable. I mean, the contrast, of course, is, is marked, and I think we're supposed to see that. That he came for the lowly, the weak, and he didn't come to, be, to lord it over and be a grand emperor as we've already heard Caesar Augustus. Notice it starts with him. And now we see the king, the king, about whom great good news is said, in contrast, in a stable. In a manger, of course, is a feeding trough. A feeding trough, so, which makes sense. If you're in a stable, you want to get the baby off the ground, you put him in a trough. And, of course, all of you have nativity scenes. And you, and you, so you know this. And there's straw in the trough. Joseph put it there. We don't, I don't know how, but you get the idea. And we're told, too, she gave birth to her firstborn. Now, that doesn't mean... Now, we're all, we do know she had further children, but this is more of a, a declaration that he is the heir. He's the firstborn. Does that make sense? He's not, Luke is not trying to make a point that she, you know, she wasn't perpetual, a perpetual virgin. It's just that he's the heir. And I love this. She gave birth, and then she wrapped him in swaddling clothes. Lest you think Mary was a wimp. All right? She wrapped him. And, of course, this was traditional, and we still do that. You get newborns, you go to the hospital, they, they're all tucked in. They're just little cocoons. Well, that's nothing new. And this, of course, was to insulate the newborn and to keep the limbs from, you know, it's just protection. And she wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him there. So very humble, humble narrative about the birth of the Messiah. Well, it doesn't end there. Now, we're going to get a proclamation about this birth. And it's not going to be to the great kings of the world. We're not going to hear Caesar being told that this king has been born. This is going to happen to some unsuspecting shepherds. Now, just think about that for a minute. Shepherds. People who were just, probably the, half of them were asleep while one guy is tending their, their conglomerated flocks for the night. And something happens. So let's, let's read that now. Someone take us uh, from 8 through 20. Up all these things and pondered them in her heart. 
The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which are just as they had been told. Awesome. So it's intriguing to think that, okay, you here you have these shepherds in the hill country of around Bethlehem. Same place, perhaps, that David had been shepherding 1,000 years earlier. Remember, we kind of tunnel and telescope biblical time. 1,000 years between David and Jesus, loosely. Wow. The United States is how old? 200-something. Yeah, I mean, we, we don't... We, it's funny, I mean, just imagine that after a thousand years, people are still looking for the promised Messiah of the line of David. Do you remember half of what happened yesterday? A thousand years. That's how, that's how powerful this desire to see the coming of the Messiah is. Well, here you have these shepherds on these very same hills. And, of course, uh, you know, we all have our, in our mind what shepherds do. We see the crook and the sheep. Um, and that's good. That's what we should see. Um, shepherds, of course, were one of the lower castes. I say, of course. I don't mean that necessarily. You're supposed to know that. Because their job necessitated that ritually they're unclean. Okay, they're, they're unclean by the very nature of their job. Uh, later, rabbinic literature actually talks about how untrustworthy they are. That they were considered, you know, even not just on a lower level as far as the rungs of society, but lower level and kind of, hmm, I don't want to be around these guys. But in biblical literature, that's not always the case. Um, there's, there's a lot of good press for shepherds in, in the biblical accounts. And Jesus himself, of course, is the great shepherd. David, the shepherd king. So we're not necessarily, I think, supposed to think that these are thugs or, or nefarious characters. In fact, it appears from the text that these, these guys seem to be noble, perhaps even aware of and understanding the significance of the announcement that they're about to receive. All that to be said, you do have now the first announcement of this birth to people who were regarded as the, one of the lowest rungs of their society. Rather fitting. So here they are, probably having worked all day, you know, and you have separate herds, different shepherds with their herds, and they conglomerate them at night so and then they take turns watching while the others sleep. And here you have the setting. And into that setting, you have an angel of the Lord, verse 9, suddenly stood before them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. In the Latin, for that shone, you can translate that. In the Latin translation, the Vulgate, it's lightninged around them to get the impact of what's going on. The glory of the Lord shone round about them. That glory that was at Mount Sinai, that glory that was at Mount Transfiguration, that glory that's over the tabernacle, shining, lightninged around them with the blazing presence of this angel 
trailing the glory and goodness of the God of the universe from another dimension, the heavenlies, ripping into space-time, bam, in the middle of the night. And they were afraid. <laughs> they were terribly frightened. Uh, this is before the age of special effects. All right, this is before, they're terribly frightened, as you and I would be. But the angel, of course, as they always say first thing, do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. And now he says to them, these are the first heralds of the good news to these shepherds. I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all people. For today, in the city of David, here's the fulfillment. Today, here's what's happened. In the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. The Lord. Not Augustus. Not Augustine. The Lord. The Messiah. The Christ. The Savior. Again, words similar to this have been used to herald the birth of and again, retroactively, of Caesar Augustus. And now you have Luke, having begun the passage with the mention of this Caesar, saying, here's the birth of the true king. And this is the only time in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where you have the word Savior used of Jesus. Now, that's not to say that no one thought of him as Savior. The whole tenor of those Gospels is about him saving his people. And it doesn't count John and all the other rest of the New Testament writings, but this is the only time in the synoptics. And it's wonderful to see these three terms used together. You have the Savior, the Deliverer, the one who's come in promise of all those prophecies to deliver his people. And they, of course, would think from Rome and from oppression, but as we've already heard, from their sin. Savior. The Messiah, Christ the Lord. That's not a name, that's a title that comes from the anointed one, the king. There are some translations who that don't even use Christ or Messiah because of all of the accretion of things over the centuries around that word. And they will actually use the word king so that we understand what they heard. The anointed king from the line of David, the one we've been looking for. The Messiah, anointed one, the Lord. Wow. All three there together. And who's this being said to? Shepherds. <laughs> Who too have been anticipating this. So they are told this, and this is going to be news of great joy, jubilation. For who? All people. And this is being announced to you. For unto you is born this Savior. And then he doesn't say, go find him. But he does say, here's how you'll know. Like they're not going to go. This will be a sign. You'll find him wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. Why the big deal about the manger? Well, that's how they're going to find him. It's not that the swaddling clothes are going to be the sign. There could have been other babies born in Bethlehem. If you're a good mama, you're going to swaddle your baby. It's the one that's swaddled who's in 
a food trough, a feeding trough. That's the sign, not the cloths, but the manger. So if you want to go to Bethlehem, here's how you're going to find him. Don't go to the inns. Don't go to, just look in the stables. Look for a feeding trough. You're going to find a baby there. This is good news of great joy which shall be to all people. Unto you is born this day in the city of David, the Savior, Christ, the Lord. And by the way, he's in a feeding trough. Wow. So naturally, more is going to happen. Then, suddenly, another suddenly. We had one suddenly with the angel. Now, suddenly again. There appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God. Now you have an army. Okay, you need to hear that word. Army. Not a choir of women with fluffy wings in nice robes singing. Suddenly with the angel, the, a host, an army of the Lord appears. Wow. Wonder what that was like. I don't I have I don't have a manger scene where there's an army. <laughs> and of course, let's I understand, we all understand why throughout the centuries the, the poetry and the and the paintings and everything, of course, would reflect the, the age in w from which they came. Angels have wings, by the way, so that you can distinguish them from humans in paintings. That's why they have wings in the paintings. But here you have now this heavenly army just flashed out in front of them. And rather than a choir necessarily singing, you now have a formation of heavenly troops declaring the birth of their king. That's very different than often how we tend to think of this. Well, what do they declare? They declare glory to God in the highest, on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. So you have this declaration by the armies of heaven, the angelic armies of heaven, declaring peace. That's a juxtaposition, isn't it? But what are they truly declaring? Glory to God in the highest. Now there's two ways we can understand that. Glory to God in the highest realm, meaning the heavenly realm, which tends to be the original understanding because it's contrasted with next on earth. So you have glory to God in both the highest and on earth. But that's not normally how we think of it. And it's interesting why. Because in the Vulgate, where the Latin translation originally and still, you have a word that represents altitude, altissimus, okay, the highest. St. Bonaventure, however, decided in the 1200s that it needs to be more than that. It's not just in that realm, but in a way or a means of glorifying God, in the highest way. And he preferred the translation in excelsis, which is what we sing still to this day. 
But that's where that came from and why we tend to think of it as glory to God in the highest way. Praise Him in the highest manner. When in actuality it appears that, appears that this army is declaring glory to God, not only in the highest, the heavenlies, which is the glory they're trailing, but also on earth. On earth, peace among people with whom He is pleased. Not the King James of and goodwill towards men, but towards men on whom God's goodwill is shining. That's the translation. On whom God's goodwill is being bestowed. Those, in other words, whom God has chosen. Those, in other words, whom will declare Jesus' birth as the Messiah. Peace to those, you can imagine the army declaring this, glory to God in His realm and on earth. And on earth, peace to those who acknowledge the King. Cool. That's cool stuff. And then, angels, Imagine what that moment was like. First you have the suddenness of all of this, and then just as suddenly, gone. And there's the sheep, and there's the stars. Whoa. So, they looked at one another, said to one another, all right, let's go to Bethlehem. <laughs> Let us go straight to Bethlehem. We've got to see this thing that the Lord made known to us. And so they go. Who watched the sheep? Maybe someone. Who knows? Yeah, God watched the sheep. Um, they probably left someone behind. The dog took care of the sheep. We don't know. But they, forget the sheep, is what they're saying. We've got to go to Bethlehem to see this. This is not something like, all right, guys, you saw that vision. Cool. But what about, you know, Bambi? You know, what do we do here now? Let's go. So they go. And by the way, some speculate that because these sheep are being, uh, you know, shepherded so close to Beth, so close to Jerusalem, it's just south of Jerusalem, that these are sheep who are being brought up for temple sacrifices, which was another layer, of course, of what's going on here. We don't know. But it could be. So they get there, they find Mary and Joseph and the baby, just as they were thinking. I still, no one ever, you never think about them getting to Bethlehem. Okay, we're looking for a stable. It's got to be because it's a manger. All right, let's go, guys. And just imagine the anticipation and what that would have been like. And then finally coming to a place and thinking, there it is. And it's just those two, Mary, Joseph, the baby. There was that big star hanging over the stable. Yeah. Oh, yeah, remember the star. The star. We're going to get to that later. Yeah, we're going to get to that later. Yeah, there was a star that just flew all around all over the place. We'll get to that later. What was the nature of the star? How did this work? Because, of course, the star is later that they find the baby later. Yes.
Ooh, good job. That's a great point. To look, yeah, that's great, excellent. And you're probably wondering, where's the donkey and the cow in the manger scenes? We're not told about them, but don't get rid of your donkey and cow, though. All right. We're going to talk about that later, Jay. All right. So when they came, and here's something I never really stopped to pay attention to. This is not something that Mary and Joseph were anticipating. Right? I mean, they're not waiting on shepherds to come and tell them about Jesus being born. And here come in these shepherds wanting to see the baby. Can you imagine? And then them telling them, just now, out, you should have, and, and you're a baby. It just, I can't imagine what that was like for the shepherds and for Joseph and Mary because they weren't anticipating that. Here you have the first declaration, confirmation of who this child is after they had received these angelic visitations coming from a group of shepherds just coming in fresh from the hills saying, we know who this is. That is so cool. Well, when they heard it, they all wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. Well, yeah. Mary treasured up these things, pondering them in her heart. All that's happened to her, all the things that have come forward, all the things she had been anticipating, all she'd been told, all that's happened, and then hear this. Pondering these things, treasuring these things, meditating on these things. And of course, later we know that she's fallen just like us. There's going to be times later in life, you know, that you're not going to think your kid's the Messiah. There's going to be those kinds of doubts. You're thinking, how could that happen? Look at this. And she pondered it. Well, she's like us. Yeah. We, we've experienced this. We've experienced the coming of the Messiah to us. You remember that? Remember the first time? And how many times since then have we wondered and doubted? And Yeah. It's not so unusual. Well, the shepherds just can't keep quiet. They're not going to keep quiet. Would you? So to anyone who would listen, they tell it. And if these are indeed shepherds who are raising sheep for the, for the temple sacrifices as well, it was told there as well. And people marvel at this news. Marvel at what they've been heard. That this has taken place. This has happened. Yes? Would they listen to shepherds? That's the thing. Well, some did. We're told they marveled. Probably marveled that the shepherds are the ones saying it too. Yeah. So did this happen on December 25th? (laughs) We're not told, right? There's a lot of of, uh, ink spilled on that one. Um, The first celebration in the Roman Empire of December 25th as Christmas was 354. 
then in Constantinople in 379 and Antioch in 388. It took a while. Why December 25th? Um, and again, it, there's no reason it couldn't have been. It would have been, you know, bad time to travel for the most part for most people back then in the dead of winter. Uh, you, you know, sh having sheep out. Yes. Can be. Yes. Oh. Just depends. Like temperate, like here. So. Uh, but the actual history of declaring December 25th, again, uh, comes from the Romans. Uh, once Christianity through Constantine has, has become the official religion, in 354 that date was fixed. And it was fixed to parallel a pagan ceremony that was already going on, the Feast of Saturnalius. And it had to do with uh, the birth of the conquering sun. Um, or as Natalis Solis Invicti, the birth of the conquering sun. There was this pagan feast after so many months, all this time of darkness, you know, that the, the promise of the sun coming up again, or the sun being visible again. In other words, anticipation of new life in spring. And as Christianity took over, that feast was co-opted, and that date was set at December 25th from that particular feast. And of course, uh, the church had no problem with that because we read in Malachi about the, the rising, the sun, S-U-N, of righteousness. And we've already looked at those passages as well. Interestingly, people gave gifts at that feast. So there's a lot of stuff that comes with the accretion of traditions and things with Christmas. We're not, we don't know exactly if that was the date. But there's no reason to say it couldn't have been, but we just don't know. But that's why we celebrate now Christmas on the 25th of December. Okay, so don't know the exact date, but there you go. And it's right here by the winter solstice. Right. Right, exactly. And that's what they were getting over, right? That the sun is not conquered, even though it appears it's the longest night. Very good. No, but that's okay. It, hadn't, it didn't have anything to do with the new year at that point. Yeah, I was just wondering. Yeah, no, no, that's a good question. Yeah. It's only one week. We got a brand new year. Yep. All right. Well, what I want us to take away from this, of course, is I don't want you to go out and break your manger scenes. If you have the wise men there, or you have stuff, you don't have an army. You can get little green army men and set them up all, no, all around. I don't want you to necessarily bust up your, your manger scenes or, or any of the stuff that's come around. Um, the, the, the key here, of course, is to recognize that the long-awaited promise of the Messiah King, the Savior, has taken place. And it's taken place in a way and what we miss sometimes is to kind of snub, the no, snub at the nose of earthly power. The decree sent out by Caesar is that which ushered in that Jesus would be born, according to prophecy, in Bethlehem. And just as Caesar has his armies, here you have the heavenly army declaring 
glory to God in the highest for what has just taken place, the juxtaposition of that. And that's still the case. We are going to celebrate, and we celebrate during the Advent, the birth of the true king. And just like the shepherds who went out and declared, and as we heard, some people may have listened, some may not, we're doing that in the face of powers and principalities that want nothing to do with this and consider it all fairy tale and superstition. But we have the message. We shepherds, to whom the, we lowly shepherds to whom this message has been given to declare this marvelous good news. God with us. Emmanuel. Cool stuff. Merry Christmas. What about the three kings? We'll get to them. Yeah, star and kings. They're all going to be the same. But we're not going to do that next week. Next week we're going to have an abbreviated lesson, and we'll look at what follows right on this in Luke before we shift back over to Matthew and then look at the visit of the Magi and talk about the nature of this star. Thank you. You're very good. You're the best. Oh, thank you, sir. Yes. The president of my fan club, Jay. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, I pray that all of us would be stunned anew at this amazing thing. God in a stable, omnipotent baby in a feeding trough. And that with the heavenly host, we would declare glory to God, both in the highest realm and on earth. Thank you, Father, for allowing us to be part of that people upon whom you have given your favor. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.